Coming up on Launch Stories. If you ask any venture capitalist out there, would you invest into a great team that has a shitty product or is in a market that you just don't believe in? Nobody would do that. You, you have to have the package, right? And that's the same thing. The Beatles are the Beatles because they have a couple of things going for them. You know, they're not only a great band, but they also write great music and, and they know how to perform. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. Welcome to Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. I'm your host, Zoltan Vardy. The Launch Stories podcast gives you a taste of what it takes to launch a global startup. Listen to founders share their personal ups and downs, their professional wins and losses, and the lessons they've learned along the way to building an international company. You'll also hear from accelerators and investors that support entrepreneurs along their journey around the world and what they think is the recipe for startup success. So join me on Launch Stories, get inspired and learn the ingredients of a successful global business. My guest today is Michael Schuster. Michael is the co-founder and partner at Speed Invest, one of Europe's most active early stage venture capital firms with over 600 million euros of assets under management. Speed Invest's portfolio of 230 companies includes four unicorns, Bitpanda, GoStudent, Tier Mobility, and WeFox, and has established the firm as a go-to investor in the global fintech space, with offices in five cities across Europe and one in San Francisco. I'll be talking to Michael about how his decade-long experience in the IT industry shaped his role as a startup investor, and why he thinks venture capital firms like Speed Invest can make a positive dent in the universe. So let's listen to Michael's launch story. Hi, Michael. Thanks for being here with us. Hey, Zoltan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I've heard so much about Speed Invest over the years, so I'm really excited to learn about the history of the company and, and your experience as one of the, the co-founders of, of this venture capital firm. Um, but prior to founding Speed Invest, you worked in the IT industry, is that correct, for about 10 years? Yes. And you completed a degree in computer science. You started the first commercial blog hosting platform in Europe. You worked with semantic technologies, for those of us who don't know, uh, that's helping machines understand data uh, for media companies and social media monitoring and so on. So all of this just tells me one thing. You're basically a product guy. Absolutely. You're focused on, <laughs> on products. So he here's the challenge. So I'm a sales and marketing guy. And, uh, and you're a product guy. You know, as we know, sales and product people don't necessarily always agree. So I thought we could kick off our conversation today with a real product guy versus sales guy face off. And since you're the guest, I want to give you the chance to first convince me uh, why product is more important than sales and building a successful startup. I can see you're not wasting time uh, to get to the core <laughs> questions here. No, it's, a, it's an interesting it's an interesting one. You're absolutely right. I am a product guy. That's also sort of uh, the reputation that I have within Speed Invest. And, and I just do think um, while over the past decade, we probably have seen a couple of companies built on top of especially marketing. Uh, I mean, Facebook and other platforms have, have made it so easy to market software. Um, they're all coming around now eventually, you know, and, and, and coming back to product-led growth, um, to, to acknowledging that, you know, you can probably spend a lot of VC money on, on marketing your stuff. But if the product doesn't hold up, if you're not sort of, uh, you know, if your customers don't love it, if they don't stick around, if they don't talk about it, if they don't expand their their offerings, um, you're just going to waste a lot of money in, in trying to convince people to use your product. So um, while I do, you know, of course, I'm, I'm a realist here. You, you need to have good sales marketing and, and the best product is nothing without good sales. 
in the end, for me, it comes down to a, a lot of the, the miles, uh, especially as a startup, you can do in the early stages uh, um, even more. You can do by having a great product and, and being obsessed with solving something for your clients. But isn't the the startup cemetery littered with companies that had a great product, you know, a great solution for an important uh, problem, but just weren't able to get customers to pay for that solution? I think that's the interesting part of the whole, you know, having a great product or building a great product. It doesn't yield, so the, the input and output relation is much more difficult than it is with sales or marketing, right? You spend a, an amount of dollars for a salesperson or you invested in the marketing and you can track the success and you immediately get feedback, which makes it easy, but is also, um, you know, it, it, it might be, you know, not true uh, for you down the road and you're not seeing the whole consequence of it. With product, it's much more difficult. You're investing into product that doesn't pay off immediately. Sometimes your product is just too early. Sometimes the feature that you built is just not right, you know, just not quite right. You need this this extra 10% to, to really make it well or, you know, the market needs to understand it. So it's a much more difficult relationship. And that's why, you know, I, th I think in a in a world where honestly also us venture capitalists have contributed to, um, you know, fast results uh, being good results, uh, product-led growth is is much more difficult to, to achieve and maintain. All right. Well, that sounds to me like you're saying that actually sales and marketing does matter. It's just within the context of of a good product, right? So I guess you have to have a decent product in order to be able to achieve some sort of market penetration, which I actually tend to agree with. Um, you know, I think my experience in working a lot with startup founders is that you often find those typical kind of tech-focused guys who get together and, you know, put together a, a really interesting platform or some sort of, of technical solution. And, and they've got this attitude of, well, if we build it, they will come. Which, uh, which I think is, is true in Hollywood, maybe, but not necessarily in the real world. Do you have a view of that, of, of getting these type of startup founders to understand the importance of sales and marketing in, in building a, a successful business? Absolutely. And I, I think you're completely right. I mean, I, I also, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to make it easy for you in the beginning, you know. And, uh, <laughs> give, <laughs> well, give you. You're very kind. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a guest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be kind here. <laughs> exactly. But no, you're, you're totally right. This is definitely a, a, an issue, especially with European founders. I, I, I might say even more so with CEE founders, at least from my experience, that they have the best mm -hmm. product, but they just don't invest anything in marketing uh, or sales. Uh, it's typically only the founder that goes out, and even even the founder usually or you know would love to spend the time on product rather than than going out and talking to people and actually solving an, a real problem. Versus, if you look at U.S. Yeah. companies, um, they they most of the time have an inferior product. I mean, it's not true for all of them, but I, I've certainly made that um, experience in my own founder uh, story. And I've made it a couple of times when funding companies that, you know, usually they're just much better um, at sales and marketing. You probably that the ratio between people that build product and people that sell product is, is just so different. Um, so you're absolutely right. I think there is there is a big um, there's a big topic here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I agree with you on the gap between the kind of the U.S. approach to, to building a business versus the European approach. There is certainly a, a more you know, focused effort at, you know, developing a very clear value proposition and really packaging it in a really compelling way to, to build it. And, and in fact, I've experienced that as well, where, where sometimes, 
you know, the better mousetrap isn't, doesn't necessarily make a better business. It's just a, a better mousetrap. And so I think you have to kind of find that balance. But listen, let's not spend too much time uh, um, arguing over that because I think in generally we're, we're in agreement that it's a balance of both. Let's go back to the start of Speed Invest back in 2011, which actually I was shocked to hear that you were only 10 years old because considering the amount of success you've had as an organization, it's actually not that long of a time. What were the early days of Speed Invest like? Um, how did you get started? What did you learn about building a successful global startup then that has stayed with you ever since? So the, the early days of Speedimist, and I, I have to say for me, it's uh, it's also surprising that it's 10 years already. Um, uh, so early days were really messy. I mean, you know, we, we started all of us as entrepreneurs, really. No one ever was investing into companies, really, or, or had a background as a venture capitalist. So we, we did what entrepreneurs do. We, we kind of, you know, tried to understand how others do it try to understand the rules of the game went got starting with uh with very little our first fund was a 10 million fund we still were six partners everyone uh, was telling us this is crazy like you know usually one partner would be able to invest that but we had a very different approach to things we, we thought you know we would love to help the founders help the companies uh, go through the learning cycles a bit faster and actually be there hands-on helping them. So if you if you want, we, we're trying to build, uh, help others build companies or, or build companies together with founders without having to do all of the heavy lifting ourselves. But that was very much what, what has driven us. And, and I think that has stayed true since then and, and is true now. We're still trying to be, I mean, our investment team is, is 40 people um, for currently a 200 million fund, which is way too big by by all means by all standards of venture capital but we just think we we can only do what we want to do um with that amount of people being really close in seed doing a lot of deals so we very much stayed true to this this original uh, idea that we had being early being hands-on um investing uh, much more than just money into the founders i mean in terms of, of learnings uh, you, you touched on one that i think is important um building a business versus building a product and then also, I, I do have to say, one of the learnings is that more money really isn't always isn't always better. Um, and the more shiny the investor, that's that's not always better. Uh, it's hard to explain this to founders because, of course, you know, how, how would you argue that? And there's so many cases where it actually worked out, but I, I have seen firsthand that that very often, you know, providing too much capital is just uh, is just pulling the company into the wrong direction and taking that you know brand name investor that usually does series a's but but then comes and does your seed round might work out but actually most of the times doesn't work out and actually i found that having too much capital on hand doesn't force you to find necessarily the most efficient solution to a problem right so if you can throw money at it you kind of have the luxury of testing a lot of things and seeing what works, which obviously is part of the startup experience, but you can get into an extreme situation, right, where you're, you know, wasting money or burning money without really thinking through the options. Have you found in your portfolio that has been a problem? Or do you think your founders have been good overseers of the capital that you've deployed for their business? I think on average, you, on average, I would say they were doing well with the capital um, available. And, and also, to be very frank, I mean, over the past decade, Europe still was underfunded compared to what the founders were doing, you know, on, on average. But then you have these companies that, you know, for whatever reason, end up being really good fundraisers or uh, get a lot of money thrown at them. 
And then it's exactly what you said, you know, too much money helps you mask issues that otherwise you would have to face. And it's not that, you know, those are bad. It's just, you know, it's in the nature of a startup that not everything can work out. So it, from my perspective, it's much better to see these issues clearly early on so you can work on fixing them rather than having tons of money that you can just throw at the problem and that way get along with it uh, without having to act on them. And have you seen the the support that you provide your portfolio companies change over time? I mean, are you finding that you're spending, let's say, less time on basic fundamental go-to-market issues now than you did, let's say, 10 years ago? Yes, we've seen that. Um, I mean, the topics overall, to be honest, are still the same. It's uh, finding great people, um, you know, trying out growth and marketing strategies um, and, you know, Talk, going through some difficult things like uh, fundraising or building your equity story. But of course, um, founders and sort of the level of um, knowledge among founders in Europe has changed massively. We now very often have people that really understand what they're doing, um, that maybe have been through it a second time, and they know much better what they, what they want. They still take uh, these services and require these services. They're very happy about them, actually. But they're also much more demanding. So, so you cannot get away with uh, you know uh, the easy things you really have to go in and, and work hard so, so the bar is higher so actually founders expect more from VC investors now than let's say they did 10 years ago absolutely and it's also you know the market has shifted towards them you know I, I remember when I was fundraising for my last company um, it was really painful and you could clearly see how this is a, an investors market and now that has shifted. Uh, the power is now clearly with the entrepreneurs. Now, you are clearly now a pan-European investor if you think about all of the different countries and cities in which you're present physically. Um, but originally being based in Vienna and, and growing from Vienna, did you have a focus on the emerging markets of Central and Eastern Europe to start and then grow into a pan-European business? Or were you thinking pan-European from day one? So we were thinking pan-European from day one, but we couldn't pull it off just based on resource constraints. So we had to stick, you know, to what is close and, and what was possible. Um, we also had this idea or, or, you know, the hypothesis that CEE is a great uh, you know, breeding ground for entrepreneurs. We, you know, all the reasons that we just said, you know, great tech talent, great people um, that we love to work with. To be very honest, in the first I would say five to six years, we didn't really see that much out of CE. And we were actually shifting our strategy to the usual hubs, trying to establish a presence there. I mean, we've still done consistently over every fund and every year, we've done a, a number of bets in CE, but we haven't seen that pan out. You just didn't see the, the same results. And then, you know, we're also results driven. So we had to change uh, uh, our strategy midway. But we're still, we are active and, and we're coming back to it and we're seeing some great uh, companies being built. So I think, uh, you know, some of the ideas or some of the hypotheses that we had back then are uh, coming alive now. Now you have offices in Berlin, Munich, London, Paris, Vienna, and you have an arm in San Francisco, I guess, to tap into kind of the Silicon Valley uh, ecosystem. How does having this many um, offices around Europe and a leg in the U.S., help you in terms of sourcing deals, but also in terms of supporting your portfolio companies? I think it's honestly the only way um, I, I would know how to do what we're trying to do. I mean, if you think about it, we're trying to do seed across Europe with a focus. Um, yes, we have six focused teams. So, you know, in the end, we end up being a generalist fund. But 
if you're not able to tap into the local networks in the earliest stages, like the business angels and you know the, the founders of other companies, you're never going to see the companies in Berlin or Munich that are uh, being created, that are raising at the right time. You're always only going to see them once it's too late for you to, to actually invest, or you're only going to see them, you're only going to see the ones that you probably don't want to see uh, as an investor. So I, I, I wouldn't know another way of, of doing this. I think you have to have feet on the ground uh, and ears on the ground, especially in the most important um, ecosystems. And in terms of helping them, I mean, I think um, really there is no European startup ecosystem. It is much more a city-driven or location-driven uh, uh, ecosystem. You, you end up getting these groups of people, for example, in Berlin that support each other very well and you also get like thematic clusters based on the successes that are being produced. I mean, it's uncontested that London is the fintech capital of Europe. So if you want to do fintech, you probably have to be in, in, in London in one way or the other. Uh, but it's also, you know, by being in London, you probably can support the companies much, much better with a local network, but with, you know, something beyond that. So, so that's why we're trying to do this. And did having this sort of on the ground presence help you during the kind of COVID environment that uh, that developed or didn't have a particular impact either one, one way or the other didn't have a, an impact we really i mean like everyone we switched to to online and <laughs> every call you would you would ask the the opposite uh, or you know the, the people you're talking to where, where are you at at, at the moment uh, so <laughs> no but but when, didn't didn't covid democratize the the sourcing process though in, in some sense I and mean, in fact didn't it make the local presence less important for the reason that you just described? I think, of course, it's sort of, um, you, you call it democratized. I, I would just say it in increased competition to, to a crazy level. Uh, and it really turned the tide towards the, the entrepreneurs. Um, we still, you, you're right, we still had some benefit of having feet on the ground because, for example, you know, the first couple of deals that we did, I mean, it, it was a new uh, situation for venture capital. In general, you, you couldn't meet people. So what we did in the first term sheets, we actually put a, walk in the park clause into the term sheet. So, so one of our partners that was local had to take a walk in the park with the startup in order to really, to, you know, at, at least That's get a feel for, for the founders <laughs> and, and, and see how the team behaves. Um, and, and, and was the length of the walk determined by the city it was in? I mean, Hyde Park is a big park, I guess, in London. It'd be a long walk or, you know, versus, uh, I don't know <laughs> what other parks there are in the cities in which you were present. Yeah, and uh, the length of the walk also was, uh, you know, determined by uh, are we going to invest or not. And, uh, and <laughs> uh, I see. So the longer the walk, the more, the more uh, I would imagine, the more information you were trying to gather to make a good decision. Okay, that's interesting. So you actually had that in your contracts or your your term sheets. We had that in the that's term great. sheets. Yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, of course, it was also a fun way to look at the new situation. But in the end, it's not. It's not. Um, it's definitely not um, fun. It's it's about you know you we're in a people's business. We're going to spend five, six, eight, ten years with these uh, people um, trying to work through real issues uh, while building a company. So you so you better want to get a feel for for what those people how how they work and you know how they operate. Um, and and hence I think a lot has changed in the past eighteen months. But still, it's the local networks. You're still working with people in, in your close vicinity that you know you. You maybe were an employee in a company before, and that usually has also some geographical aspect to it. I mean, I have to say, I, I often tell the companies that I work with uh, and advise that you know, getting into bed with an investor is it's like a marriage, right? I mean, you've you, you've got to be in a situation where you want to spend a lot of time with this person, and for that reason, it, that the personal connection is so critical, which is, of course is why the COVID impact on on relationships and networking was so devastating for 
people in your business because you couldn't have that personal connection. But it sounds to me like you found a clever route to at least get uh, some benefit from uh, from those personal connections. So that's uh, kudos to you for that. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of your uh, success stories, which is always fun to talk about for an Indian investor. Your portfolio consists of over 230 startups. This includes four unicorns, which I think is a really amazing um, ratio. Uh, you've had over 15 exits. If you think about those four companies, right, unicorns being companies that are valued at $1 billion or more, um, which is increasingly becoming more common as valuations grow, um, are there any common points you discovered among these four companies that may give us a clue about what it takes to build a startup that eventually becomes a unicorn? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question because um, you know, trying to do some pattern recognition. I mean, for me, first, it's it's interesting and also great to see that out of those four um, that are currently publicly unicorns, um, two of them are out of Austria, so out of our home turf, which again, you know, stresses the point uh, that you just made in terms of local networks. Which is Bitpanda and GoStudent, yeah? Exactly, Bitpanda and GoStudent. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, down, down the line, we're going we're gonna to see, you know, our, our unicorns are going to come from everywhere in Europe, but just also, you know, it's a, it's a factor of time. So these have been in the making for a while, and, and there's a good reason why, you know, we, we, pro- we invested into them a while back. So these local networks played a, a, a pretty big role. Um, so that's an interesting one. The other commonality, I think, is um, that two of them, Refox and Bitpanda, are fintech companies, essentially. So uh, you also see that sort of the industry plays a pretty big role in, in whether your, your startup is going to reach that uh, valuation, so the market size, uh, really. But then I'd say it's also there are other commonalities that are maybe not so obvious. So, so just looking into um, a, a tier and Refox, for example, these two serial founders very execution driven in very tough industries so insurance and mobility that are really around uh, execution um, so i mean tier mobility basically brought the the scooter model so the, the bird uh, or lime uh, scooter shared mobility model to europe they're now the uncontested leader they're in, like in hundreds of cities or uh, across europe so, so really doing well but it's very clear this is an execution-driven model. You know, it's not about the, the novelty of the idea. It's basically you have to take this idea and make it work in a in a market like Europe, which is you know completely different than the US. Um, or insurance, WeFox really sort of it, it's a basic insurance model, right? There's there's not much uh, there's not radical innovation going on here, but you really need to know what you're doing. So very um, uh, so the serial founders taking on um, those execution-heavy models. While on the other side, you have Bitpanda and GoStudent, uh, both of them bringing a fair amount of innovation to the market. So GoStudent being an online learning platform, like a marketplace between tutors. Yes, there have been these kind of models before, but every market is different. You know, the the, the demand is different. It's, it's not varsity tutors. It's sort of much more early um, and you have to work through that model. They went through a lot of iterations. And, and quite frankly, there, there were times when when Go Student was close to bankruptcy uh, and didn't know how to to uh, raise more money, uh, I think same with Bitpanda. You know, very new market. There were a lot of lot of exchanges out there. A lot of people tried to do the same thing. And for both, you could actually say, so why should any of these companies come out of Austria? 
and, and there's my take on it. I think that's with new models where it's less about execution. I mean, execution is always important, but it's more about making that model work and scaling it. That really can come from anywhere because it doesn't matter where this model comes from. You know, there's no, there's no uh, uh, benefit or no, no advantage starting it from a certain uh, uh, place. It is really whether you you can figure it out fast enough and then raise capital. And so they have very different histories in terms of, of you know what type of businesses they are. So that's interesting. So what I'm drawing from that is that when there's startups that are entering markets that where there's heavy competition, the importance of execution grows because you're actually you're not bringing in some radical innovation as you described, but you're actually just doing something better. Versus if you're going into markets where you have high levels of innovation, there the ability to test and react and iterate and 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 come up with the right mix of business model and go to market strategy is what's going to really be driving success. Is that a fair conclusion? Absolutely. And and you know, maybe adding to the point that we touched already, both GoStudent and Bitpanda had times in their company history where they really had trouble fundraising. So from day one, they needed to find a model that really works for the clients and and you know gives them business growth so that was a very different um a different approach versus i mean you know that scooters work right the question is just can you get them into enough cities fast enough right we've talked about the big wins right or the big um breakthroughs neither of none of which have actually reached exit stage i believe right you haven't exited any of these companies no which of your exits is is memorable which one is that really sticks out in your mind for whatever reason, uh, you know, all of them are memorable in some way, but but um... well, you love all of your children the same. <laughs> but really, there's one that you love the most. No, that's true. <laughs> no, I, again, I mean, you know, in a, in a in a history of you know also personal history of venture capital, there there's some exits that are more uh, meaningful than others. I think uh, the one uh, of Spock was was one that was very memorable to us because it was our first sort of major exit. Um, uh, mm -hmm. so also an Austrian team, I also believe. Also an yeah. Austrian team. Um, and they were basically doing eBay on the on the mobile phone, um, and that was sort of the first moment that that we thought, ah, this this can actually work, you know? Build yeah, this actually this actually is gonna could work. <laughs> yes, okay, it's, yeah. it's also the it's the moment where you where you go home to your your spouse or your mom and you say like, look, mom, that it's it's gonna work, right? <laughs> um, because up until then they were all like, it was worth giving up my my high paying job and my you know all the benefits just to start with something you know start something from nothing and hoping it were hoping that uh, it were, comes together. Yeah. So good, okay. So that's a that's a great one. Um, and when was that exit? That was early on. I think. Wait a second. Was it 2014, 2015, something like that? I mean, they, okay. So about f four or five years into your yeah yeah, yeah. It, it took a while. And venture capital is a is a long game, right? But we we sold parts of our share. Um, and that's maybe something that is also memorable and, and interesting to me. So we sold parts of our share actually when they raised the round as secondary. And then when the when the final exit came, we uh, got the rest of it. And that tiny rest, or the tiny remainder that we kept in, in shares in the end was worth more than uh, the initial part that we sold. So it's also always good to, to hold on. This is just the law of venture capital. Absolutely. And what would have happened if you have held on to those shares? Yeah. Huh? Did you do the yeah. math? We, of course we did the math. <laughs> good, good thing is we didn't have a choice back then. So um, uh, it, it was you know, right, all good. Right. So one of the consistent um, feedbacks I get from all of the conversations I have with every single investor is that at the end of the day, sure, market's important and product's important and go to the market and all that stuff is important. But effectively, what we're doing is we're investing in teams. We're investing in people. Now, I found a quote from you. 
Um, and you said, good teams are like a band. Together they sound better, and when you are on stage, it feels like magic. Good teams get the best sound possible and are obsessed with creating wonderful music for their audience. So um, tell us about the teams uh, that built these future unicorns. Did they always play beautiful music together? Um, you did your research. That's a good one. Um, so I have to say, and, and that's probably also ties back into your first question, I'm, I'm not in the people camp alone. You know, I, I think if you ask any venture capitalist out there, would you invest into a great team that has a shitty product or is in a market that you just don't believe in? You know, nobody would do that. You, you have to have the package, right? And that's the same thing with, you know, the Beatles are the Beatles because they have a couple of things going for them. You know, they're not only a great band, but they also write great music and, and they know how to perform. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. Now, did those teams in, in those four, especially, did they always play well together? Um, to a, to a large extent, yes. Um, but I have to say also, again, comparing, if you look at, you know, Go Student, uh, the founders and, and Bitpanda, the founders, they're really much more like a band of brothers and, and, you know, they went through a lot together. Mm -hmm. So they, they stick together versus in. So they got into, they got into fights on the lawn in the afternoons or what? Everyone has different strategies, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're, they're very close knit. They're very, they're very tight knit. And then, uh, you know, you look at WeFox or, or, or Tier, both of them, zero founders, they, they really, you know, they, they built a management team very early on. They, they, they pulled in heavyweights that are really good in executing in that industry. And they, they bring stuff to the table that is important in, in what, what they're trying to achieve. So, you know, very different approaches. But in the end, uh, I, I'd say, yeah, they, they're all great teams. Yeah. And what do you think the investor's role is in managing startup teams? I mean, uh, what do you do when the band comes together and they just play really poor music? Do you go in there and tell them, guys, you got to do better or you got to get rid of the drummer because he's just not keeping you know, the beat? I think you're you're uh, you're basically like a good producer, right? You're uh, you're trying to strike a balance between being brutally honest uh, and giving them time to figure it out themselves. Because I mean, there's no kidding; everyone knows if someone plays the wrong tune in a band. Like it's not that that you're not listening to it. You're just you know sometimes you're just trying to find out um, how to tell it to that person. Sometimes you're just you know giving people a bit of time to to figure out their their what they're playing but you know I think it's a it's a very delicate balance between being some sort of a coach a producer that really clearly also provides feedback and then at some points really being like a, a tough manager um, in a sense of of also making it clear when, when things need to change yeah got it okay so so ultimately being a good investor means being a good producer as well in some capacity you can say that so um as we move towards the end of our discussion today, um, I wanted to sh get your feedback on something um, in particular that struck me from some of the research uh, we did in preparation for today's conversation. You know, a, a popular narrative uh, among entrepreneurs is that investors are focused on maximizing shareholder value, squeezing every last bit of value out of founders for their own benefit. Um, not a very flattering picture. But I have spoken to enough founders who are really fearful of bringing investors into the company because, um, you know, of what they're going to do with their company. And I was struck by a sentiment you wrote uh, in your bio about how you believe that investors can actually make a dent or a positive impact in the universe through their work. And can you talk about what that dent is exactly and how it impacts your approach to, uh, to investing? On the first part that you said, I think um, that's one of the true misconceptions out there that 
you know, of course, there are ruthless investors. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen how investors try to push out founders. But in the, you know, if, you, if you're really honest, you know, we're owning a minority of the company. We're not driving it ourselves. We're, you know, we essentially invested into the team uh, and, and that was our bet. And uh, we have all the incentive in the world to actually, you know, back the team. And by backing, I really mean that in a literal sense, um, you know, to have the back of the team. So there's there's really very little situations where where something like this actually happens or or you know is in order, and I do think in the end is it's like you said it's people's game or people's business. Um, I personally I'm certainly in it for sort of the human connection and and seeing founders grow and and uh, you know just solve something that they're passionate about. That's the that's all I get out of this. And that's your role, right? To help these entrepreneurs bring their dreams to life. In some capacity. Absolutely, and and in you know also if you look at it, there's a there's a big um, discussion maybe only among VCs. You know who's the client of a venture fund, and I'm I'm firmly believing the startup is the client. You know we need to do something that founders like because as much as you know it's important that we have money from investors from LPs that back us that we can then invest into startups. The only thing that you know we give them and we promise them is actually some return. But you need to be able to work with the best teams out there, and you know you need to be able to 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 find that chemistry um, so that it works. So I think um, for me, it's really about that human connection, um, and, and that doesn't only it not only creates sort of companies that are successful, doesn't only create I don't know stock value or, or returns to LPs, but it also creates personal stories, personal growth stories, and and those are. Those are where the real magic happens, you know, where you really see that people get to do stuff that they love um, in, in an intellectually challenging environment, um, very often bringing something to the world that makes the world a tiny bit better. That's a combination like, you know, you, you're basically creating a positive impact on so many levels. And, and that's what I'm passionate about. Thank you, Michael. On that positive note, I, I want to thank you for joining me here today on Launch Stories. And I want to thank everybody out there who listened to this episode of uh, the Global Startup Podcast. Really hope you got inspired again from some of Michael's words and uh, learned some of the ingredients of building a successful global business. If you like what you heard, uh, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. Mm -hmm.